Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are episodes where my co-host Paul Bishop or I get to hang out around the virtual Six Gun Justice campfire and spend some time talking with friends who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is Will Rogers Medallion Award-winning and twice Spur finalist author Doug Hawking. Although his roots are in Cornwall and New England, Doug Hawking grew up on the Hickoria Apache Reservation in north-central New Mexico, the Rio Arriba, where he still maintains close ties to friends, Pesano and Indio. It is a land of mystery, miracles, and penitentes. Doug served in the U.S. Army in military intelligence and armored cavalry. He spent many years in the Far East and speaks Chinese. He holds advanced degrees in American history, social anthropology, and historical archaeology. He writes both history and historical fiction. Doug received the Will Rogers Medallion Award and the Co-Founders Award from Westerners International for Terror on the Santa Fe Trail, Kit Carson, and the Hickoria Apache, which was also a Spur Award finalist from Western Writers of America. His Tom Jeffords, friend of Cochise, a biography, was also a Spur Award finalist. He has twice been awarded the Danielson Prize for Best Program. His website is www.doughawking.com. Thanks for reining in with us today, Doug. Oh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You know, you've had an incredible career. When I look at your bio, it just seems like it's chock full of kind of once-in-a-lifetime type experiences. When and where did you ever find time to start to write? Well, my whole life, my mother's been after me, after me to write, reminding me that my ancestors still have books in print as far back as 1640. But I attended a high school where they convinced me I couldn't write, and I didn't begin to think I could until the Army, the Armor Armor Officers Advanced Course. Gosh, I was in with 60 West Pointers, the whole West Point year group, and 60 other fellas. And I was the only one that passed writing the first time. Really? (laughs) Really. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was kind of interesting. And then I went to the instructor and, and said, hey, you docked me on this. You should have known that word and convinced him it was so and got two more points. <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, and and then in the Army, you know, I'd already been working in social anthropology and several other things at the graduate level. And uh, they found out that I could write concisely, accurately, and that I knew how to investigate. And though I was usually on the exempt list, because of my other duties, I kept getting thrown in on investigations because I, I could write a report and I could do an investigation. And then finally, my mother convinced me to sit down and start writing <laughs> about 11 years ago. Wow. So that that's wonderful. So when did you did you always think you were going to write about the Southwest and the area you grew, you grew up in? Or did you originally think, oh, you know, I'll write a short story or something? Well, I love the Southwest, and I started out writing historical fiction, which is kind of um, kind of a blessing because writing to be interesting and to tell people things without exactly saying them outright, I'm able to put that into in when I write history, which makes it a lot more interesting and easy to read. And not the dull stuff that some folks remember from high school. The other thing was there were questions I wanted answered. Things I could see weren't just right. There was a huge gap in the history of the Hickoria that no one had really covered between 1840 and when when they went on the reservation in 1887. 
I had to know, you know, what was going on? Where were they? Well, that produced Terror on the Santa Fe Trail, Kit Carson and the Hickory of Badgey. You know, you had a, a personal investment in that, and that, that excitement and curiosity, I'm sure, comes through when you have a, an actual reason. You're, you know, you're writing for the reader, but you're also writing for yourself, right? Oh, very much so. I mean, when I'm writing history, I'm investigating things that have puzzled me and uh, attracted my attention. The story of Lieutenant Bascom and Cochise. Gosh, I just watched a horrible TV show last night on YouTube. Clint Eastwood's first appearance where he was actually credited was a show about Tom Jeffords and General O.O. Howard and Bascom and Cochise. And Bascom is, and Cochise for that matter, are both completely misrepresented. I recognized that in the story. And I began researching, oh gosh, years and years ago, followed it through in graduate school for history and kept finding out more and more every year until finally my friend Rick Collins handed me material he'd put together over the years and convinced me that one thing that I thought was in the record wasn't, and it changed everything. Wow. So that kind of brings up, you know, you noticed that. I, I'm sure if I was reading about the Hickory, I wouldn't have noticed the, the gap there. But you noticed it. You grew up on the Apache Reservation in New Mexico. What was that like? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I love being on the reservation. I have, have and still have lots of good friends. I met the tribal historian a few years ago up at Fort Union. Uh, he was there doing a presentation and was introduced to him. And he said, oh, you used to date my cousin. That was 55 years ago. Oh, man. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, apart from that, you can't imagine what the reservation was like you know, in the 50s and 60s. In the early 50s. Farmington, the next nearest town, was a week away by wagon. Finally, they put in a dirt road, and that would take you all day. We had cut that by the 60s to, to a couple of hours. And Farmington, the big city, boy, that, that was two roads, two, two main streets. So we thought that was huge. <laughs> but, you know, we were one general store, the Apache Mercantile, a trading post. And we still had people living in tents, using outhouses. And it got down to 40 below in the winter. Oh, wow. You know, you know, it's 40 below when suddenly your flashlight goes out. Wow, that's cold. Yeah, it's 8,000 feet up there in Dulce. And so every winter, people got sick. People disappeared in the snow. People would stagger around drunk and, and you know, pass out in the snow. In the spring, we all had the uh, Dulce Trots. Pumping station for water was on the Navajo River. And uh, with the spring runoff, all sorts of things came down with the water. <laughs> it was hard watching people that had no hope and were held on the reservation by family ties. And, you know, I know people here. I don't know anyone anywhere else and who were didn't know how to interact with people off the reservation. And the government gave them just enough to keep them alive. Cruel. Must have been some great fodder and great memories, even if the memories weren't pleasant all the time. Some good stuff for your for your writing. Yes, indeed. So you've written about George Bascom and Kit Carson and Cochise. And with all your experiences, 
How do you decide what you want to write about next? Do you have a you kind of have a running list of things like, oh yeah, I want to get to that sometime? I find things that interest me and start exploring them. I don't know how I got on the current topic, which is train robberies on the Southern Corridor. I've got that book almost written now. Almost all of them come back to where I live in Cochise County, where Wyatt Earp tried to clear up the cowboy problem. It didn't exactly work. Gosh, I looked into one story. I was going to include Blackjack Ketchum because he was the only man ever hung in New Mexico or Arizona for train robbery. I'm going on, you know, I'm bringing this in. And then I got to looking into the the Blackjack gang and who Blackjack was. And it turned out the real Blackjack was a Cochise County cowboy. They got started down here in Cochise County, went over and tried to hold up a blank in Nogales, muffed it, got chased by the law. Their next action was to go to a tiny town on the railroad in New Mexico, Sapar. Must have been all but all of about four buildings at the time. And they held the entire population of the town, all five or six of them, at gunpoint <laughs> while they robbed them of $2.50, all the cash they could find, coffee, beans, flour, and sugar. <laughs> and they did it twice. <laughs> it was so successful the first time. <laughs> that was quite a gang. And oh, they were the terror of the Southwest for a while. And one by one, they got picked off. And Blackjack Ketchum, who claimed to be the one and only original Blackjack, had no history in the area. You know, stories like that about names we haven't heard of or that we're not super familiar with are so priceless because, you know, there's always a story about uh, Billy the Kid or Wyatt Earp or something. But but to find a character like that, that's that's just wonderful. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. I have to admit, being driven by uh, a publisher that's commercial rather than academic, so I have to write about people, things people will want to read. Well, that kind of brings up what what do you think makes a good nonfiction western? Is it is it historical accuracy, or is it is it a name that we need to know more about, or what do you think? Well, one of those terms that I love is anachronism, and we all suffer from them. As I keep telling my wife. Deborah, climate is a construct. It doesn't exist. Climate change is real. You know, as an historian, you look and there really isn't climate. We are in the habit of thinking about, oh, yeah, how the weather was the last few years. That's climate. The problem is it's, it's, it's unstable. <laughs> and everything else, weapons, machinery, where the roads are. Oh, that's a fun one. Because everybody thinks that the roads were where they are. One good friend asked me to review his book. And the first thing I told him is, you know, these towns didn't exist. There are so many things that you can assume that as things are now, they always were. So understanding economics, transportation, the mechanics of things, the economics of things, the ultimate nonfiction book is going to be able to show that to people without boring them to death. Yeah, you know, when you said that, it made me think about my son is into the railroad. He just he he loves trains and and railroad history here in mid Missouri and right here in Jefferson City. We'll we'll drive through a suburb, you know, and he'll say, "Well, we're driving through the town of Plummer." You know, if you go through that guy's yard, his backyard there, that's the town of Plummer where the uh, the train stopped. And then literally, you know, you think you're about 10 blocks later. He says, well, now this is the town of whatever it is, you know. You think, gosh, there used to be these little stops, you know, little one shack 
stops, but they might maybe had a post office or something. And you're right, it, they're not there and the roads are gone. And to imagine what that all was like. You know, absolutely. In in the days of the stagecoach, the Overland Mail, uh, every 15 to 25 miles, you had to have another station to change horses, change mules. And uh, the railroad in the early days, every 25 miles, they needed water and wood. Great, exactly. You know, we don't understand that. We watch uh, John Wayne jump on a horse and he's riding the same horse for, you know, three days and they never stop to feed the horse or water the horse. Or <laughs> I always think of that. Like, what? Are, gosh, what are they doing? I picked up a Time Life book that talked about how one of the terrors of the, the original railroads was the Indians starting prairie fires to uh, put an end to the railroad. They said, but some of the fires might have been started by the trains. I rode on the Cumbres and Toltec Railroad. The Cumbres and Toltec runs from Antonito to, to Chama, New Mexico, but it used to run from Silverton to Durango through my hometown, Dulce, to Chama, and then on to Antonito and Alamosa. Anyway, I got to ride the remaining segment of the railroad, and between the cars, I was blinking hot cinders out of my eyes. There was a vehicle, a utility, uh, following us about a half a mile behind to put out any fires we might accidentally start. Exactly, yeah. They didn't have that uh, 150 years ago. Let Let her rip. Let yeah. it rip. Keep going. Well, it, it really is amazing. You know, you think about the roads and you mentioned the roads and, and the they sometimes start as a cow trail or something else. How have you seen the the reservation change over the years? Has, I assume that that life on the reservation now is better than it was then. In the 60s, they came up with a program to build houses for people. And I think everyone now is in a house instead of a tent. The Hickorya in the 60s, got rich on uh, oil and natural gas, which were in abundance on their reservation. Oh, okay. And so they're able to write checks to everybody in the reservation a couple times a year. In the 80s, they decided, hey, wait, we can have casinos. And that has been a blessing for some of the reservations as a way of getting money back from the whites. Uh, Dulcie's a little too remote for that. I wondered how that had affected, you know, from the time you grew up to, to now, how the, the casinos and that sort of stuff had affected the, the area there. So the, the tribe now has money as a tribe and they're able to build things and uh, they have better medical services than they did, better stores than they did. But there's still not much there in the way of jobs. And it's still, you know, for a lot of them, it's still hang on uh, where I know people, where I have cousins. Don't go out in that frightening world. The ones who've been in the military, who've gone to college, have a whole different outlook on life. You know, they're not afraid of it anymore. So what's what's coming up next for you? What will we see in 2022? Well, hopefully the uh, working on the railroad train robberies on the Southern Corridor uh, will come out in 2022 with just a little luck. And where do I go after that? I don't know. Uh, I've been researching the mountain men and I've got some interesting views on their economics and gosh, the whole economics of the uh, of the plains and the Indian trade. So that will probably be the next project. We've got uh, the WWA convention coming up in uh, in Montana next summer. 
And I know you're you're pretty active in WWA. Is that uh, I, I assume maybe you'll be there, and some of our listeners can can meet you there. Yeah, I I am active in WWA, and I ought to put in a plug for Packing the West, which is a program to take Western frontier history back into the schools. Uh, that includes items of curriculum, books, items students can handle and look at as well as speakers like myself who will go to the schools and uh, make presentations to the children. And I think that's divided up into different, like four different uh, subgroups, right? What are you specifically, when you do your presentations, what do you do? Well, I've I've done presentations on the trails and uh, on the mountain men. Okay. That sounds like a great program. You know, I know that Chris Enns, the president of Western Writers of America has been really actively directing that and and moving that along. And I think it's a great program. You know, we really need to get history back in the schools. I know when I was in school, it wasn't great. The history I got wasn't great. Kind of like the writing that you mentioned in your high school. So I think we really, really need to get this back into the young people. Uh, I think so, too. And I was really afraid the schools wouldn't want us that their doors were closed, anything outside. We're teaching the next next test. We don't have time for that. Uh, but I have been approached by five or six different teachers at, at, at various events who want me to come and speak at their schools. Oh, fantastic. That is really good news. That's really gratifying, but especially if they can get warm bodies like you and any any of the members of WWA who would like to participate in this, you know, if you can get in there, it gives the kids a different perspective. So, Doug, I'd like to wrap up our conversation by, again, pointing listeners to your website at www.doughawking.com. And uh, you're on Facebook and social media, too, right? Oh, yeah. Doug Hawking author page. Amigos and Ladies of the West is another one of my Facebook pages. I share that with uh, seven other authors. The eight of us get together at the Tucson Festival of Books in March and uh, meet the public and sell our books. Fantastic. Doug, thanks for being with me today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing, author Chris Enns, and the Western Writers of America for making this podcast possible. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.